Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. We have a wonderful psalm to study today, Psalm 45. There's no debate about it. This is a messianic psalm. And when I use that phrase, a messianic psalm, what I'm speaking about is simply that this psalm talks, describes, gives us information about the Messiah. And there's another important truth that we need to remember, that Messiah's work ultimately is not just for the Jewish people. But when we go back and understand the Abrahamic covenant, God's desire was to bless all the families of the earth. So it's a very broad covenant. It is called to be an inclusive covenant of all peoples, nations, languages, and such. But of course there is a condition, and that condition is faith, faith in this one, in Messiah. So we're going to see that God is well pleased with his son, and that the nations, and we're going to see examples of this, of how they cease in their loyalty to their nation, their people, and they embrace the truth of God, the purposes of God, and the Redeemer that God sent into this world, the Anointed One, Messiah. So let's begin. Take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm 45. Now we're going to see that the language of this psalm is, is very difficult. It is also, in many ways, symbolic. It describes things in a very unique way, in a way that oftentimes shows variety in the images that are being expressed, but there's a common purpose. How wonderful, glorious, marvelous the Messiah is. It speaks of his majesty that God is indeed well-pleased with him, that it was God who anointed him for this purpose. And the purpose is to establish a kingdom where nations and peoples, they will make a decision. To come unto him, bringing him gifts and for the purpose of worshiping him. So let's begin. Psalm 45 it has that familiar inscription that is verse 1. And so once more, between the Hebrew text and other languages, more often than not, there's going to be a verse difference in the numbering, but no difference in the words. We read in the first verse that inscription, that familiar, which means to the chief music director, 
the one who is orchestrating this, this psalm as it's utilized among the congregation for worship. And we see that this psalm, it's best to be used with a specific instrument. And this instrument is the same word where we can get a rose or lily. There's different interpretations, whether it's an instrument or perhaps a tune or such. But, but from the rabbinical standpoint, there's instruction here to the chief orchestra director concerning the instrument. It was written, it's not for the sons of Korach, but rather it's by them. They are the authors, this tradition, this group. They were the ones who wrote this. And then we have the type of psalm that it is. We read here that it's a maskil. And this is to give us wisdom, understanding, that leads to good things. When I say prosperous things, things that are pleasing to God, things that accomplish the wonderful will of God. And then finally it says, shir, yididot, and yididot is a term of friendship. It is a term of, of love for, for one another. And therefore, it's a song of friendship, of love, of, of intimacy, of togetherness. And here again, the message is this. It is only the work of Messiah that can bring about this, this togetherness, this unity, this intimacy, this love that the people of God will indeed experience. Now let's move into the second verse speaks about the heart. Now, even though the sons, and this is in the plural, the sons of Korach are the author of this psalm, we see an individual or a unity among the author of this psalm. And it speaks collectively, but in an individualistic way where it says, my heart. And the next word, the word, rachash is a word that in modern Hebrew, if it's used in regard to one's heart, there's a heart murmur. The heart is behaving differently. It is showing some effects. It's not beating in a, a normal way, but in an extraordinary way in this context. So some Bibles, and I have no problem with using this phrase, my heart overflows. It's functioning in a more powerful manner. It is reflecting the joy, the happiness, the wonderful outcome of the work of Messiah. So once again, the author says, my heart overflows. And then it says, devar tov, a good thing. And the implication is, with a good thing. And this good thing is in agreement with the will of God, the purposes of God. In other words, what we're going to see is this. There is going to be a recognition. Peoples, nations, they are going to recognize the will of God. Their heart's going to be touched by the work of God, and therefore they're going to come together. And this coming together has a, an image of 
a marriage. In fact, many of the commentators, especially from, from Christianity, sees this as almost as a description from an Old Testament perspective of this wedding banquet that the book of Revelation speaks of. When God brings the variety of his people, those from every group, nation, people, and language together under his lordship, based upon what Messiah was sent into this world to do. Then it says in the second part of this second verse in Hebrew, the first one in English, where it says, I speak to the king my works. Now, some would say that these works have to do with their, their writings of praise, of adoration to God. So he says, I speak of these things that I have done, these praises, these words of adoration, things that, that depict worship of, of God. All of this comes from a desire to worship God. And one of the things that, that is, is seen in this psalm is that those who recognize Messiah receive and apply his work into their life. That is going to lead them to worship God and worship Messiah. So worship comes from this experiencing of entering into a relationship with, with God through Messiah. Once more, I say to the king, my works. My tongue is a author's pen, and then the word is mahir, which is quickly, most Bibles say, my, my tongue is a ready pen of the author. So he's ready. He wants to speak like someone writes down a song. He wants to speak this publicly. He's ready to do that. He has an urgency to share these good words concerning the, the work of Messiah. Verse 3 in Hebrew 2 in English, he says, You are beautiful, literally more beautiful than the sons of men. And what it speaks to here, and this is addressing Messiah, it's saying that, that you are, are better than, than the rest of human beings. One explanation for this is Messiah never sinned. He never fell short of the glory of God. He perfectly did God's will. And therefore, he is unique than all other human beings. Is he fully man? Yes, he is. But we also know. He is also the Son of God, being fully God, divine. And therefore, the uniqueness of Messiah is emphasized in this verse with the words, you are more beautiful than the sons of men. And grace, and this is the word grace or favor, it's not the word chesed, but the word chen, which oftentimes has this concept of favor. Favor has been poured out upon your lips. And here it's a reference to his words. 
And here, what we find is through his words, his instructions, what Messiah taught, we can follow those words, obey those words, implement those words in our life. So the outcome is going to be that we find God's favor, that God's going to work in our life in a positive way. But if we are not wise enough and humble enough to receive God's instructions through Messiah, then we're not going to know his favor. The favor of God is seen in his words, the words of the lips of his mouth, in other words. Therefore, God, he has blessed you forever. And this simply points out that the blessing of God with this anointing, this call, this pleasure, God is well pleased with the work of Messiah. So that's what this verse is saying when it says, he has blessed you forever. God has put his blessing upon you. Another way that this can be understood is simply this. There is no other way to receive the blessings of God only through him. He's the only way to be blessed, to find the blessings of God. He's the key to it for your life and my life. Verse 4 in Hebrew, 3 in other languages. Gird your sword to your thigh. Now, this says, even though Messiah, he's got words of favor, words of grace, he's the key to blessing, he's the anointed one, it also depicts him as a warrior. When it says, gird your sword to your thigh, well, we know when Messiah returns, I'm speaking of the second coming, he is coming, he's going to speak, and that sword, his words, are going to come forth from his mouth like a sharp sword. And that is going to do something. As a warrior, he is going to bring the defeat upon the enemies, the victory upon his people. He is going to set things in the order of God according to the will of God. So we read, Gird your sword upon your, your thigh. Oh, mighty one. And this word, mighty one, is simply the word for hero. The word hero and mighty one is the same in Hebrew. And then it continues. Your, your splendor and your majesty. Now, normally, these are words that are reserved for, for God. He's the one of splendor. He's the majestic one. But we see that also Messiah is taking these same attributes, these same character descriptions, and they're being, by God, applied to him to show that the Son of God, as we see from the writings of, of Paul, that equality with God for Messiah was not something that, that he sought after, that he had to grasp, that he had to take, because he was always... In the very essence, God equal to God. But he humbled himself, submitted this anointing for the purpose of carrying out the work of God. So your splendor and your majesty, 
The implication is, is this one is the Messiah. Then it writes, look now to, to verse 5 in Hebrew, 4 in other languages. And your splendor, that's what it's speaking about. The glory, the, the wonderful state of being that he is eternally. It says, your splendor, it rides forth, it goes forth in a prosperous way, meaning this. Biblically, the word for prosperity, hatzlecha, this is a different form of the same word, and it's a connected to the will of God. In other words, prosperity is seen in the fulfillment of God's will. Never lose sight of that. The lie of the enemy is this, that prosperity is found in the things of this world. That is a lie. The enemy is a liar. Prosperity is always in the fulfillment of the purposes of God, the will of God. And it says, your, your splendor, you ride forth in prosperity in the will of God. And secondly, it says, upon the word of truth. So we see a connection here between prosperity, the will of God, and the word of God, the truth of God. And then it speaks about a righteous humility. So when we look at Messiah's character, his splendor, his majesty, it is rooted in his very essence, who he is, but it's expressed and we can share in the same splendor, the same majesty by reflecting it. Now, I talked not too long ago in another message. There is a very important, <coughs> excuse me, distinction. Messiah on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. What was unique? What was the message? Is that the, the splendor, the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God emitted from him. Why? He is majestic. He is <laughs> splendor. He is glorious. He is holy. We are not in and of ourselves. When we submit to the instructions of God, we can reflect his splendor, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. But it's not something that we contain within ourselves. It's only when we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He's within us. He moves, he empowers, he provides. But we need to see it's his glory being reflected, not our own glory. We are not. We are flesh and blood. We are going to return to the dust of the ground. And it's only the redemption of that inner one, the spirit of man. It's only this redemption that allows us to reflect these wonderful things that are intrinsically belonging to God. They never belong to us. So we read, that, that in this passage of Scripture, we see that, that God is going to manifest through His only begotten Son, the Son of God, 
these same attributes, and they're going to go through the majesty, the splendor of God. He is going to ride forth in a prosperous way. And the foundation of that is the word of truth and righteous humility. Now, some of the English Bibles break these up to two different things, humility or meekness and righteousness. But it's not written in that way in the original language. It is a righteous humility. And the, the message here is that it's humility that brings about righteousness. Pride, when we live in pride, walk in pride, we will never manifest manifest anything related to righteousness. Then he says, you teach what you teach, your instructions, however you want to translate, this is the same word that the word Torah is derived from. So your instruction, your teaching of your right hand, right hand is integrity. Right hand shows that which is loyal, faithful. That's why we normally shake hands with the right hand. It shows sincerity, honesty, those type of characteristics. So your right hand, it manifests, it teaches, it reveals. And then it's not uh, uh, horrible things, but the context of this word norah, is awesome things. So God's right hand, or in this case, the Messiah's right hand, it manifests the awesome things of God. Now, can they be things that, that relate to God's judgment? Absolutely. But God's judgment will manifest wonderful things. Why? Because the kingdom of God is an outcome of God's judgment. Look now to verse verse 6, 5 in most Bibles. Your sharp arrows. So he speaks about his ability to carry out war. Weapons such as arrows and such show a, a threat. So he has arrows, sharp arrows. And what are they going to do? Well, well, peoples, because of his weapons, his power, his ability to make war, peoples before you are going to fall. In the heart of the enemies of the king. So it speaks here that he has the power to bring the enemies of the king, to bring them down. They're going to fall in his presence. So it emphasizes his power, his ability to defeat the enemies of the king. And here the king is, is God himself. Verse 7, 6 in other languages. Your throne, O God, is forever. God's throne is eternal and then he says the, the rod or staff, it's the word shevet, the rod of uprightness is the rod of your kingdom. Now, this word shevet for rod implies authority, authority and power. And we see that God uses his power for that which is upright, that which is good, 
that which is proper. This is what describes the authority of his kingdom. So again, a rod or a staff shows authority. It shows power. But what's being emphasized here is the authority of the kingdom is for uprightness. That's what motivates him. That's how he responds. And he says, look at the next verse. You have loved righteousness and you hate wickedness. Now, the one who's carrying out all of this, establishing these things, these things that are good, these things are in line with God's will and his purposes, is Messiah. So when it speaks here that you have loved righteousness, it may very well be speaking about not God the Father, though he loves righteousness, but the emphasis now is on the anointed one, this one who's going to rule over the kingdom of his Father. And he says, you have loved righteousness, and you have hated wickedness, Therefore, on account of this, the outcome of this is that the anointing of God, your God, and the implication is this anointing of God is your anointing. You're going to behave, rule, lead, carry out all these things in order that these same things, what God loves, righteousness, and what he hates, unrighteousness, wickedness, all these things are put in the right order. Righteousness to be established and wickedness to be destroyed. That's what Messiah is anointed for. And this anointing is one of, of oil and joy. And it says basically that Messiah has been anointed with this just oil of joy more than all his, his counterparts, meaning this. All the other servants of God, whether we're talking about Moses or the prophets, whoever, the kings of Israel and Judah, we're speaking about how Messiah is distinct, how his anointing is a different anointing. And it's going to bring about this anointing, he says, joy. And the joy here is going to be related ultimately with worship, the worship of of God. Verse 9. And speaking about this anointing oil, it's, it's composed. We're going to see that it is that which produces good deeds, works that are pleasing to God. And why do I say that? Look at the next verse. It says, myrrh and aloes and the next word, I believe in English it's translated kasasia. But the important thing to know is that this is a type of, of bark from a tree that is uh, uh, made to be most fragrant. So it smells good. All these things, myrrh and aloes and this, this bark that's treated in a way that makes it fragrant, says all of these are your garments. Now, garments, as we know biblically, relate to deeds, actions, works. So the works of Messiah, they have a pleasing fragrance, meaning they're good works. And he says, from the, the palace, this can be sanctuary, the word hechal, 
from the palace or sanctuary of ivory, and from there they will be glad in you. So it's saying here that when people come to worship, enter into that intimacy, come into the sanctuary of God, the place of worship, worshiping God produces gladness. They will be glad, and the implication is because of you. And the connection is all these good works, these fragrances of myrrh and aloes and this, this aromatic bark, all of this is pleasing. And when it deals with garments, as I said, it has to do with actions, behaviors, deeds, works. All of this makes the people want to worship God, and it brings gladness into them. Verse, verse 10 in Hebrew, 9 in others. Now, here we see the response of people. Many times, and especially when we deal with females, what should come into our mind? Redemption. So these are the redemptive ones of the nations that are going to respond to the work of Messiah. They're going to be, in essence, these people, the bride of Messiah. We're speaking about this unity of the nations, of peoples, of languages, of tribes, coming together under the lordship, the rule of Messiah. So we read, the, the daughters of the kings, it says, with the, the honorable ones, meaning with that which is precious. Now, the word here can, can be used to say these daughters of the king, these, these precious women, or we can say that, that they come with precious things, however you want to, to understand it. And notice that these honorable ones of these daughters of the king, they are, are there, but notice, we have the queen. She is, is positioned, she st is stood on your right hand. Now, what is this? Well, the image here is that there's these women, but then we turn into the queen. So these women are like the bride. What it speaks about is the nations becoming the bride of Messiah. Now, obviously, it's not all the nations, all the people, but those who come into the congregation of the redeemed. These peoples, nation, tribes, they are going to come from, from kingdoms, but they're going to become the bride of Messiah. And here that bride is spoken of as a queen. And this queen that is positioned on his right side, your right side, O Messiah, she is, she is with the gold of Ophir. And here we're talking about the finest gold. Her image, how she is presented, how ultimately she's going to look is glorious with this fine gold. And the implication is that the, the congregation of redeemed, the church, is going to ultimately be in this glorious state. Here again, reflecting the glory of God, reflecting his holiness, reflecting his character, not emitting from one's own self, but reflecting 
all the, the goodness of God. Verse 11, he says, Listen, O daughter, and see, and incline your ear. And then he says, And you shall forget your people and the house of your father. Why? Very simply, just as Ruth, she left her people, her nation, and she says, my people and my God are you, the God of Israel, the people of Israel. This is the same thing that's being described here, that there's going to be a conscious decision to break from their natural heritage and embrace a new identity. That's all it's saying here. Forget your old identity, old people, and forget the house of your father, what your, your national uh, uh, origin is, and embrace a new call. And then we read that the king, that he will greatly desire. Now, the word greatly is not there, but... There's a couple different words for wanting something, desiring something. And this word is one that shows a stronger desire than, than other words. So the king, he is going to strongly desire your beauty. What you become in Messiah, that's the implication. For he is your Lord and therefore worship him. Now, this is important because it, it condones, it admonishes us to worship the Messiah. He is the king. That's what the term Mashiach is in Hebrew. We speak about Melech HaMashiach, which means King Messiah. So because of all that he has done, it says the king, this is Messiah, will desire your beauty, your new condition through faith in him. And it says, he is your Lord, worship him. And then we see that, that there's going to be a fulfillment. We're going to deal with the daughter of Tyre. Now, this is in Lebanon, and we know that the, the land of Israel is going to expand. It's not going to get smaller like the United Nations, like the European Union once but it's actually going to become bigger. It is going to include a greater amount of the nations. It's going to fulfill that promise that God made to Abraham. So we see that the daughter of Tyre, with a gift, what's going to happen? She's coming with a gift, and it speaks about people, not just one daughter, but, but those people are going to respond with a gift, and the wealthy ones of the people, they will, will hope for your presence. Now, usually the term mincha, there's two words for gift in Hebrew primarily. Actually, there's a third one, shy, but, but it's less common. We have the term matana and mincha. Mincha usually is, is more related to a gift of worship, an offering, a sacrifice, where matana tends to be gifts like gifts to the poor, gifts among people. So the daughter of Tyre, she is coming with a gift. And then we see 
that the wealthy ones of the people, they are going to hope no longer for their wealth, their possessions, but they are going to hope for the presence of God. And what we see here is an image that it is through worship that we should have, and the word hope here can mean to have an expectation of the presence of God. Worship brings us into the presence of God. Verse 14 in Hebrew, 13 in other languages. All of her glory, the daughter of the king, is inward. Now let's take this carefully because what it says, the daughter of the king, this means a believer, someone who has become part of the family of God through faith in Melech HaMashiach, King Messiah. It says this one, all of her glory is inward, meaning the emphasis is upon her new character. And then it says concerning this same one, we read, and from the, the, the braids, and this is the, the garments of, of gold, she is dressed. And here again, the image is this. Her glory is not her outward appearance according to the eye. Whether she is, is beautiful, and it's not an emphasis on her garments in a natural sense. What this verse is saying is this. That, that the believers, the congregation of redeemed, the church, all of that glory is an inward. It comes because of an inward change, becoming a new creation in Messiah. And then when it speaks about her, her garments that are, are woven or pleated or braided, all of her garments are gold that she's dressed with, it's not talking about physical clothes, but good works. That it's this inner change that is going to produce outer works, good works that are precious to God. That's why the term gold appears here. Verse, verse 15 in Hebrew, 14 in other languages. Speaking about the congregation of redeemed, this, this daughter of the king, it says she will bring to the king, and then it's a word for fine things that are embroidered. Now, embroidery speaks of oftentimes different types of, of threads that are made like needlepoint, and it may show a variety of colors. But the image here, this is workmanship that is of a fine quality. And what it says basically is individuals that submit to Messiah, they are going to live in such a way that they present those things that are pleasing, these things that are beautiful, these things that show, show workmanship. Well, we become the workmanship of God. Therefore, our work should also reflect his presence in our life. So it's simply speaking about in verse 15, how the true believers are going to offer up to God those things that are pleasing. Second part of the verse, and versions after you and with her companions, they, they will bring unto you. So it speaks not just 
one person, but there's going to be others. And versions here speaks about an absence of idolatry. These individuals are not going to be idol worshipers anymore. And here's the message. It is faith in Messiah that brings an end to idolatry. One of the things prophetically, when we look at Israel's history, one of the things that plagued the Jewish people was this constant falling into idolatry. And what the scripture telling us is this, the only solution against this is faith in Messiah, his workmanship. Instead of falling into idolatry, we are going to be doing good and pleasing and glorious work that we will offer, that we will bring unto our Lord. Verse, verse 16, 15 in other languages. These uh, women, and it's a, a symbol of the body of believers, says they will bring with gladness, and gladness is in the plural to show an abundant gladness and joy. So them worshiping, them serving, them doing these things and offering them before God, it's not done out of, I've got to do this. It's an imposition. It's an obligation I have to fulfill. This is not what we see. Quite the contrary. These things are being brought before God with, with abundant gladness and joy. Yes, it says, they will bring into the sanctuary of the king. And all of this shows that when we serve faithfully, when we do God's work joyfully, the outcome, we're going to be brought into the presence of the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We're going to be with him in his sanctuary that we have through this new covenant faith that produces truly good deeds, the outcome is worship where we can experience intimacy and the very presence of God in our life. Next verse, it says, in exchange for your fathers, they will be sons. Now, the image here is this. Instead of fathers, fathers, providers, sons, heirs. So we're going to change from being those that are providers to being recipients, heirs of the good things of God. And this change is going to come about, keep reading, it's going to come about when God sets them. He is going to make them to be, and these are high officials in all the earth. Here it's simply speaking about what we learn in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, that passage about the millennial kingdom, where it says that the church is going to rule and reign with Messiah. So we find out that we're going to inherit a call, a call to rule and reign with him. We're going to be those high officials, those cabinet officials with Messiah, in the kingdom of God. Last verse, verse 18 in, in Hebrew 17 and others, where it says, I will remember your name. What is this speaking about? I will remember the character of Messiah. So important that we remember what he's like, his character, his behavior. 
his attributes, all of this. I will remember your name in all the generations, in generation and generation. And therefore, people, when we remember Messiah, what he has done, he is going to cause us, this is just the natural outcome where it says, therefore, peoples, not just one people, but God's purpose is for all the families of the earth. Potentially, it's an invitation. Will everyone be saved? No. Will everyone eventually get into the kingdom of God? No. There's a remnant. But that remnant is from all peoples and nations and languages and tribes. And therefore, it says, peoples, they will praise you forever and ever. And that term, forever and ever, is a, a reference to the eternal kingdom. Whenever we speak about foreverness, for eternity, what should come into our mind is the kingdom of God. I've shared with you many times that this word forever is an adjective that describes the kingdom of God. So a wonderful psalm that speaks about God's anointing of his son and through that, it's going to be the work of the Son that is going to be prosperous, meaning it's going to fulfill God's will. And this is going to bring about a remnant of the nations becoming the bride, the, the queen of the King Messiah, ruling and reigning with him, worshiping him, serving him, being transformed by that call and being brought into intimacy with the living God through faith in his work, that gospel message, what the gospel reveals. So a very encouraging psalm, this Psalm 45. Well, I'll close with that until next week. May God bless you. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.